Look at Marcus. He devotes, I think it's about 58 of his meditations are devoted to coming to terms with death. Now, if death was just nothing, death is, you know, he wouldn't need to. He wouldn't need to, but he does. He gives himself all these arguments <laughs> for accepting the reality of death. Death is natural. Death is universal. Death is part of nature. He has to work at it. Now, he's not in those passages, as it were, giving a kind of pre-morning, you know, an, an anticipatory morning. He does, you know, he's working, but, but, but he does recognize that to get to that point of view requires work. It does require work yeah. of us. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Dr. Chris Gill. Professor Chris Gill is an emeritus professor of ancient thought at the University of Exeter. He's the author of Learning to Live Naturally, Stoic Ethics and Its Modern Significance. He's one of the most influential figures in modern Stoicism today, so it was an honor to have him on. In this discussion, we focus on themes from his most recent book. It's essential for understanding the core theory of notions like indifference, providence, stoic development, virtue, and the emotions. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros, and today I have the honor of speaking with Chris Gill. Chris is a emeritus professor of ancient thoughts at the University of Exeter and one of the founding members of modern Stoicism. He's the author of the recent Learning to Live Naturally as well, which we'll be discussing today. Thanks for joining again. Very glad to be here, Caleb. I'm sure we'll have a good conversation. Oh, very good. Let's start with this question. So how are indifference the material of virtue for Stoics? Okay, so... In life, there are all sorts of things we want to have. We want to be healthy. We want to be reasonably well off. We want to be alive. We don't want to be dead. We don't want to be unhealthy. We don't want to be poor. So all our life consists of selecting, what the Stoics call selecting between indifference. Sometimes we have to choose between them. Sometimes you might have to select health rather than wealth or wealth rather than health and so on. So they can be selected on various principles. You might select them by saying, oh, well, I just want the most of all the um, positive indifference, some so-called preferable indifference. You might say, oh, I want everything. You know, I want everything. I want to be healthy. I want to be wealthy. I want to be famous and so on and so forth. You might, you might think that's a principle for, that you might use for your decision-making. But that would be a very bad principle. <laughs> that wouldn't be a very virtuous principle. Now, a virtue, so virtue, enable, virtue is sometimes defined as knowledge or expertise in, in living living well rather than living badly. 
So virtue enables you to choose correctly between these these values which present themselves to us all the time, all our lives, we're, we're, we're engaging in this process of selection. There's no time when we're not doing it. We can't just turn it off. You know, it's, 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 it's just the stuff of life. But virtue enables us to choose correctly between indifference. So there might be some situations. Let's think of one. Supposing... Here's an example. Supposing you, you're an employee and you know that something really wrong is happening in your firm. Now, you're now going to have to choose between the comfort of remaining in that job and the, indeed the income of remaining in that job, perhaps, or doing what you think is the right thing, mm-hmm. which is to whistleblow, to, to let people know that something's going wrong in your firm. It's corrupt. Now, I think it's pretty clear that the virtuous course of action would be to whistleblow, to blow the whistle. So you, you, you would say, yeah, yes, this is, this is going on. You could tell the police, you might tell the press, you might tell people in the firm, whatever. But you would, you would take that risk and you might lose your job or you might lose promotion or you might lose you know, a comfortable relationship with your employers. So the virtuous course of action then, okay, so virtue is, in that case, in all cases, making the correct choice. It's cho- enabling you to choose between indifference in a way that's correct. Correct, that is, in that it's 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 acting, well, the Stoics would say, according to the virtues. Mm-hmm. The virtue here is the virtue of justice. You're acting according to justice. In other cases, it might, you know, there might be a different virtue involved. So does that help at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's, so indifference, uh, I'm just assuming that indifference aren't like completely indifferent. I mean, there's different views on this in Stoicism, but I, they're not completely indifferent. And the Stoics, Sometimes talk about preferable and dispreferable. Ones that you, preferable, it sounds very technical, but basically preferable, just the kind of thing you normally want, you know, like being healthy, not, not ill. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, but just, just looking at the indifferent on its own isn't enough. You've got to give it a kind of context, context of ethical understanding, and that you try and build up your context of ethical understanding. Right, right. Yeah. So I suppose thinking about preferable indifference, one way to understand the Stoic view is that it falls in between the philosophical cynics and the Aristotelians, where the cynics held that the only thing of value, the only thing we ought to pursue is virtue. And the Aristotelians held that there were some goods in addition to virtue, health, reputation, what have you. Whereas the one way, at least, of understanding the Stoic account is that their virtue is the primary good. It is what is necessary and sufficient for a happy life. Mm -hmm. But we can still talk about these other forms of value or other forms of goods in terms of preferable indifference. Yeah. They're, they're still not good, 
they're still neither good nor bad, but they are preferable. Yeah, on on a on a standard mainstream Stoic view, that's yeah. right. And yes, indeed, there is a kind of contrast between. Well, I tell you what, it's it's a contrast between. There's someone called Aristo who is an early Stoic, and Aristo is a bit like the Cynics. Um, it, oh, he's like the cynics as you described them, in that he he just thinks, well, indifference are just indifferent. All indifference are the same. You know, they really don't matter. They, they we can't think about them at all. We can't give them any any weight at all. We must just do the virtuous thing. Whereas the the the, the more standard view, the view of Zeno, Chrysippus. And really, most Stoics is that that there are preferable and dispreferable indifference. Um, yes, health. We norm we normally do indeed prefer health. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's always right to choose it. Uh, or wealth, perhaps an easier example. So yes, you could see it as an, an intermediate, intermediate. But 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 it it is still nonetheless very much the case that it is entirely the case that virtue alone is good and not the preferable. Indifference, the preferable the indifference are neither good nor bad. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But by the way, the what people like Chrysippus said about Aristo was, well, hang on, if you if they if they if they're really indifferent, how are we going to set about making choices in our life? How do we how can we be like blind people as we stumble around? We would have you know there would be no difference in health and and sickness. In wealth and poverty, even life and death. I mean, how could we how could we function as human beings? And I think that's quite a strong, strong objection, actually. Yeah. So I suppose the preferable indifference, dispreferable indifference, would be action. Whether that suggests is that they would be action guiding and that weren't taken in. They are action context. Guiding. Yeah. They, that's exactly what they are. They're action. They're they're normal. They are well. They're action guiding. They're, they're action guiding. They're motivating factors. They are. They are not in principle motivating mm-hmm. factors. Whether they motivate you in any given case, of course, depends on the decision you make or on the response you make. Mm-hmm. But in principle, so, they're motivating factors. Yes, indeed. What determines our what makes it the case that some choices are virtuous? And to give a little bit more context to that question, which is, of course, a, a big one. One account that some people give on the Stoic side is that ultimately the virtuous choices are grounded in nature. They're grounded in mm-hmm. human nature and also the nature of the cosmos as a whole. But my sense is that you have uh, some reticence about that, the strongest views of those sorts of claims. To, to, to answer that question and to give a sort of decision-making context to it, let's think about Cicero's On Duties. Cicero's On Duties is a work by a Roman thinker who isn't actually a Stoic, but he, but he's, he presents Stoic philosophy in some works. And he does so actually quite accurately. Now, in Cicero's On Duties, he's giving us practical advice. Well, he's actually giving his son practical advice, but we're listening in. He gives us practical advice 
about how to make decisions in a stoic way. And what he does is this. He says, okay, we want to get a, a bit of an, a better understanding of how to make specific decisions in line with Stoic principles. So the first thing we'll do is to get an understanding of what the virtues involve. And he gives a definition of the virtues. The Stoics have various definitions of virtues. Wisdom is this kind of thing. It's kind of knowledge and understanding. And then he says, and then here are some examples of the kind of thing that, wis that, that, that exhibit wisdom. It's, it's, it's the t typical kind of what you might say is a wise act. Similarly with justice, he'll give a general definition of justice, and he'll give an example of the kind of thing that is, in principle, a just act rather than an unjust act. And so what Cicero is assuming, and I think what the Stoics generally assume, is that ethical understanding is in part just that. It's understanding what these categories mean, what the general, you know, what, what, what definitions we'd give of them, but it doesn't have to be a definition, it might be a statement about it, and the kind of actions that are involved in, 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 in acting justly or temperately or courageously or whatever. So now these, these definitions aren't, or there, there's no reference, so in, in the first instance, there's no reference to nature, but he, Cicero does actually refer to nature from time to time in his work, in various kinds of ways, but he actually refers not to cosmic nature, not to the nature of the universe, although Stoics sometimes do refer to the nature of the universe, he refers to human nature. Mm -hmm. So he says that, for instance, when he's talking about generosity, he says, well, to, to, to get a uh, so I suppose we're thinking about generosity. Well, to understand generosity, we've got to understand human association, what it is that brings people together. And to do that, we have to have a, a sort of broader understanding of human nature. And then he, he explains that human nature is distinguished by being a combination of rationality and sociability. So we've got a general picture of human nature. And that gives you a broad picture of hu human beings. And then he says, this leads us to form various kinds of association as human beings. Some of these can be very general. We can have a general feeling of, of affinity with human nature, all human beings, the so-called community of humankind or the cosmopolis. And then within that, we can have specific kinds of human associations the family, our neighborhood, our, our you know, workplace, whatever they are, various specific ways. And all of these are more or less specific versions of being a human being and relating to other people. And he says, if we kind of think about this, it helps to give us a broader picture. Now, this is all a bit vague, but, but, but if you add these two things together, we've got the pictures of the virtues and we've got an account of human nature. So part of what virtue is, is leading a human life uh, well. It's leading a life that is, as you like, the best possible form of human life and fulfilling human nature, which is a combination of rationality 
and sociability. So Cicero thinks it's quite useful for us when we're making decisions. We, there, we might have specific grounds for making decisions, but it's also useful for us to have a broader picture of what it means to be human and, a few, and types of human association in making specific decisions about who to be generous to. So you're going to be more generous, reasonably enough, to your family and your friends and those who've performed services for you. But you'll also, in appropriate circumstances, be generous to anybody, a stranger that's just stumbled in through the door, a refugee that's just arrived in your country. Those, you might have those grounds for being generous. And you have that if you have a better understanding of what human nature is, which is fundamentally rational and social. So I can see how the picture of human nature enhances our view of what acts are virtuous and what virtues are worth cultivating in different contexts, different social organizations. How does the larger aspect of nature and nature of the cosmos then enhance how we should think about the virtues? Yes. Well, I think, I think the, the Stoics make two moves in this direction. They don't always go straight from just us <laughs> to the cosmos. They're very interested in, I mean, well, one of the very interesting features of Stoic theory is their ideas about, about, what, about ethical development. And ethical development is characterized frequently in terms of what they call appropriation, oikiosis. So they have a theory of oikiosis. And oikiosis is, well, I don't want to say oikiosis is quite complicated, but, but one of the, the ways they approach oikiosis or appropriation is by saying, well, human beings do this. Animals in general behave in a certain sort of way. And human animals behave in this kind of way. So they think that all animals, for instance, are instinctively motivated to self-preservation, to care for themselves in that sense, and that human beings are, are naturally inclined to maintain their own life, but also their own character as human beings. So human beings have the same basic kind of desire pattern as animals, other animals, but they have a the, they do so rationally remember human beings are rational and sociable so so the the so one of the thing one of the moves the stoics make is to connect human behavior with larger patterns around us including that of other animals and then they make a further move which is a further transition towards this broader kind of cosmic picture they think that these basic patterns, uh, these basic motives that we have, motives to care for ourselves and to care for others of our kind, because they think that, that we have an, a natural motive to care for others of our kinds. And they, the Stoics think that those motives are a reflection of a broader pattern in nature as a whole, the natural world. They think that the natural world 
exhibits what they call a kind of providential care for everything within it. So nature, on the Stoic view, that is cosmic nature, cares for, in some sense, everything in it, plants, animals, human beings, and even the material world, as it were, like sea and air. All those things are, in some sense, cared for by nature. And, and so there's a kind of pattern in nature, a pattern which a pattern of care. And I suppose if they were asked to defend this view, they'd say, well, if, it, if there was no such pattern of care, if there was no such order in nature, everything would be utterly chaotic and unpredictable. And, and, and there would be, you know, plants wouldn't grow in the, in the spring and animals wouldn't, you know, look after themselves and protect themselves and animals wouldn't mate and everything would be just kind of goes to a stop. So I think that's that that kind of view, which is a perfectly reasonable view, underlies that. So that's another way, another link between us, human behavior, doing normal things, and the the cosmos. So that's so we've got several sort of stages, if you like, with the idea of nature. We've got human nature, we've got human nature as part of the natural world, and then because they think that nature as a whole has these general tendencies, providential care, they also think that nature is characterized by order, there's an yeah. order in nature. They think that in that sense, the cosmos is also a kind of model for us. Just as nature has a kind of orderliness in it, so and, and is capable of providential care, we too should have create in ourselves a kind of order. And they think that virtue and, and happiness based on virtue have a kind of inherent order and structure. So we should model ourselves on the universe in the sense that it, we create a kind of ethical order in ourselves, psychological order. And similarly, we, we, we express nature's providential care by caring for ourselves and by caring for others. In. So I think there are a number of specific, perfectly credible ways in which the Stoics connect you, me, Chris and Caleb, and the cosmos, but they don't get there mostly in one go. <laughs> Getting there in one go is a bit tricky. But these various stages, I think, these links make a lot more sense of it. Right, right. Sometimes the Stoics themselves and people like Marcus and Epictetus, they kind of skip out some, they, they rather omit these intermediate stages, but, or at least they don't refer to them very much, but they, they are there in various texts that we've got. I suppose you have this, this, I suppose you have this fractal image of sorts where you have reason that has this aspect of order, but also this aspect of prosociality or providence that's manifested in different ways through the different levels. Spiral, yes, yes. Spiral no, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Macrocosm and microcosm. There's, we are a microcosm and the universe is a macrocosm, but the same structures are present in both, the Stoics think. Actually, yeah, we think yeah. that too. We think that too, but, but, but they're just different accounts of, of what these structures are. I, I do think that's, that's very useful to think about that you have the aspect of providence at the larger level 
in terms of supplying what's necessary to live than at the natural world to care for oneself, care for others, as seen in animals and human animals, of course, too. And then you can be even more specific, the human animal, yes. about how that is manifested in different social organizations, different people, and so on. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. I think there are lots of there are all sorts of levels going on, and these levels have things in common with each other. And when we use these very large terms like cosmic order, cosmic providence, of course, it seems it's, the mind kind of goes blank often because these are so large. But when you break them down a bit, they 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 do make a reasonable degree of sense. So when we are caring for ourselves by you know keeping keeping alive feeding ourselves and and leading a decent life and when we're caring for others in in the, all the ways in which people do care for each other then we're enacting as it were or we're embodying this very much broader pattern which is present in nature as a whole of caring for everything that there is and nature cares for everything not by sort of <laughs> like a great chess chess chessboard by you know moving you know it isn't that nature sits there as it were and thinks oh i want caleb, caleb to do this now what well, what it does is by giving us by enabling us to realize our own humanity by by enabling us to to function as independent human beings because what nature wants us to be is the best possible form of human being and and so and the best way of doing that is to 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 develop people's mind you know is to allow people or enable people to develop their mind their understanding their relationships because sometimes people talk seem the way people talk about stoicism it sounds as though there's some sort of you know mr no some kind of wizard of oz at the center sort of you know managing everything and telling us telling everyone to what to do it isn't like that at all Nature is is a kind of enabling power. It's it's it, it's enabling human beings to be this, plants to be this, microbes to be this, rocks to be this, the air to be this, and all that to kind of fit together into a kind of organic whole. That's that's how I think sex think about nature, and that's actually I think quite a good picture of nature. It's one we need to to recover a bit because we've we've done rather terrible things to nature. So we need to have we need to recover a, a sense of nature as an organic whole, and a kind of homeostasis. One question I had was how can Stoic philosophy enhance or help us see more clearly nature, the natural as a, understood as a natural world? You know, how can it enhance our encounters with? The natural world, if at all. How do, you, how do you think about that question? It's a kind of continuation of what we were just saying. I think that that what nature can help, and what stoicism can help us to do, is to, well, first of all, to stop us saying there's humanity on the one hand and nature on the other. I think it's it's that's that's a very bad way. I think of thinking about the world. Because it's 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 very artificial. We're not we're not some kind of completely alien entity. We are we are part of nature. We're part of nature. We're made of the same stuff as everything else in nature. We function in many ways like other things in nature, like other animals, like plants. We depend on nature. 
we depend on bees and insects and all sorts of other aspects of nature. So I think what Stoicism can help us to do is to give us a sense of humanity as part of an organic whole, and also one that needs to be preserved as an organic whole. Because what we've discovered, of course, in recent years with global warming and climate change is that human, human beings have become so powerful in terms of their manipulation of preferred indifference <laughs> that they have altered the balance of nature that we have by pumping CO2 gases into the, into the atmosphere. We have actually altered the climate. We've actually altered the way the balance between heat and cold and, and the, the balance of the seasons. And so what we need to do is to do all we can to try and correct that. And I think Stoicism, now Stoicism can't provide us with modern scientific explanations for this. What Stoicism can do is to give us a kind of vision of the world, a world as an organic, a coherent whole, a coherent and organic whole of which we are an integral part, and can give us a kind of visionary picture of what we should be working towards restoring. So I think that's that's really valuable feature of yeah. for us now, a really valuable and important lesson. It's not a matter of just going back to, it's not, you know, it's not a kind of nostalgia. It isn't that we're kind of going back to, you know, everything in Stoicism, everything was all right. It's it's just that their picture of the world still has a kind of validity for us that we can re 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 recapture. Yeah, yeah, very good. One other area I wanted to ask about was in terms of Stoicism and emotion. So a very a common objection to Stoic ethics and the Stoic view of emotion is that it detaches us from things mm. of yes. value or yes. that it is too self-sufficient, mm. focuses too yes. much on self-sufficiency. Mm. And the classic example of that is Epictetus, his discussion mm. of the jugs and the exercise of understanding that Jugs are merely temporal things. They will break. And then moving from that to kissing your child or wife and saying that this too is a temporal thing. It will die. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about, about that concern about, about stoicism. Yeah, sure. It's always the same example, isn't it? Quite interesting. It's always Epictetus and the jug. So it's a particular passage of the handbook. People always go back to that one. That seems to be based on a larger passage in the discourses, and I'll say a little bit about that passage in a minute. But let's ask what the general Stoic view is of our relationship to other human beings. And as I've stressed, the Stoics actually think that as human beings, we are rational and sociable. So sociability is a, is a fundamental element in nature. So it's not enough just to be rational. You've got to be rational and sociable. And, and, that's, and so when it comes to oikosis, appropriation, we've got two fundamental motives or instincts to care for ourselves and alongside that, to care for others of our kind. So these two motives, are they're on a level. It's not that we've got one and we have to kind of uh, manufacture the other, or, or that we only become 
caring for others because we're brainwashed into doing so. No, these are nat these are part of our nature. These are part of our nature. And there's the, the the big stake example of that is 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 the instinctive care for your children. You look around the world, and even the mafioso boss cares for his children, cares for his family. I mean, the, the Stoics wouldn't think the mafioso boss was a good good example of of a good human being, but but you know, even even someone like that cares for his children. So, so. The, the the stoic view of what we are as human beings is sociable, and as we develop, as we get a better, a more sophisticated understanding, we form families, we form communities, we take part in political processes, and all that is a, a, a proper expression of human nature. So the general stoic view isn't at all one of detachment. The general stoic view of what it is to lead a normal human life is to engage with other people. That is, other people matter and, uh, uh, and we matter to other people. So that's the general view. So then you might say, okay, well, that's all very well. <laughs> that's all very well. But what about Epictetus and the jug and whispering to your child that he, that he may, you know, he or she may maybe dead and and so on and 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 thinking about people as like jugs they can break well the jug question is is a bit maybe complicated but 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 the general the general point that i think epictetus is making which is actually the same point that other stoics would make is that okay human beings have all these other characteristics but one characteristic we have is we die we're mortal, okay? So we're rational and sociable. We're also mortal, so like other animals, like other plants. Now, this is a very uncomfortable fact because death is very much a dispreferred indifferent. We don't want to die. We, you know, people left to their own devices, you know, choose between life and death, now I'll go for life. So people don't want to die. But they do. They do. And people we love die. And, and, and it's, it's, it's very tough. And of course, we die. That's perhaps even tougher, I suppose. Depends. In some ways, it's a bit hard to say which is tougher, really, but they're both very tough. So now, most of the time, we thrust this to the back of our consciousness and go on acting as if we're immortal. But of course, that is a mistake. That is a mistake, and sometimes this can lead us into 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 a kind of mistaken kind of relationship. Sometimes, and sometimes, of course, because we we do know, as a matter of fact, that people can die. This can make us very anxious, and this comes to the context in which Epictetus is talking. the 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 context in which this passage comes up is is Epictetus is talking to um, a former student who says. Well, you know, I'm really worried. I can't really go to Rome, although that's where my, as it were, job is. He's a senator there. And he says, I can't go to Rome because I'm really worried about my family, especially my mother. And she gets, is very anxious when, when I leave. And, and she might die when I'm away. And I'm really anxious about that. And I have to show what the Stoics call philostorgia. I've got to show family feeling. So 
So Epictetus is addressing that particular anxiety. He's addressing the anxiety of someone who can't, as it were, do his job as a, as a, as a, as a responsible member of society, because he's so worried that if he, if he leaves home, the people might die while he's away. And then he says, well, no, you've just got to accept it. You've got to just do your, play your role. You've got to, you know, if you undertake a certain responsibility and you think it's worthwhile, you've got to do it. So sometimes you've got to go to Rome or you've got to go to Oregon or, I've quite forgotten where you are, Caleb. Where are you? you I'm in San Francisco. I'm in California. California. You've got to go to California or you've got to leave California. You know, you might say, oh, I can't leave California. Everyone's there. My, my. You know, my my partner, my family, I've got to stay in California because they might die while I'm away. And there are times when the commitments we have in life, I mean, we shouldn't be traveling too much at the moment, actually, but, but there are sometimes our commitments require us to go to other places. And so Epictetus says, well, you've just got to accept it. And you've just got to accept that your baby, sadly, might die while you're away, or you might die and the baby might live on or your friend might die, or you might die, you've just got to accept it and not use it as the basis of your decision-making in any given context. That's what he's saying. You can't base your decisions on your anxiety about the idea of people dying while you're not there. That's what he's saying. Now, mm. actually, when you examine it, that's a perfectly reasonable thing for for. for for someone to say. I mean, anybody, actually, not just a Stoic. But of course, the Stoic, it does fit in with Stoicism because Stoicism stresses you should do your job, you should act virtuously, and that you should accept death. And then, of course, people take these passages out of context and they say, oh, well, that means that Stoics don't care about anyone. They, you know, they just care about themselves. They just care about self-sufficiency and so on. But of course, that's completely wrong. And by the way, while we're on self-sufficiency, the Stoics don't actually say that individual people should be self-sufficient. What they say is that virtue is self-sufficient for happiness. Okay, so virtue is self-sufficient for happiness. Now, but virtue isn't necessarily just self-centered. I mean, two of the virtues, the four cardinal virtues, one of them is justice, Okay, justice, and the other one is courage. Now, both those, both those virtues only make sense if you're involved in social relationships, if you're acting as a social agent. So what they're right, saying right. is, if you lead a virtuous life, then you will be leading what they call a happy life, the life according to nature. But to go from that to individual self-sufficiency, you know, meaning I'm just, oh, I'm just here on my own looking after me. That's all that matters. That's, that's completely different. It's just a verbal trick. It's quite misleading. Right, right. But people do it a lot. Of course. Yeah, I wonder if, of course, there's a sort of the silly version of the self-sufficiency argument, which holds that Stoics really just care about themselves and they're not going to be engaged in their community or social relations. I think there's a, another version that I, I'm interested to hear, hear your response to that is maybe brought out best with the story of Stilpo or Stilpo, where he his city is sacked 
by Demetrius. And Demetrius, you know, is looking down on the destruction that he has wrought and knows that he has killed Stilpo's family, his children, but sees Stilpo walking out. And Stilpo appears, you know, to be holding his head high, doesn't seem obviously displeased. And Demetrius goes to bother him. And Stilpo's one liner in this story is that you took nothing good from me, or you took nothing of mine, which portrays sort of this one reading of the Stoic view that now, you know, the destruction of Stilpo's city is out of his Stilpo's control. Mm -hmm. It concerns indifference and he is not going to sort of pay some sort of psychic cost because he has lost his children and his wife in uh, the destruction of his city. So, and I think so, that's maybe one one version that sort of gets across the thought that you know, if you experience a terrible thing like that, you should have your well-being tied up to others in the sense that you should feel feel destroyed after that sort of thing. So what, what's your thought about that about that story? Well, that's yes. What you've just said, of course, is that's the Aristotelian view, isn't it? That 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 you should you should you have a positive as it were obligation to to feel that 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 if all these things are lost, you are lo you are destroyed, and that our happiness depends on the combination of virtue and preferred indifference. I mean, well, you know, external goods. Now, what is the Stoic going to? respond to that. We are still so Silpo in this kind of one-liner holds his head high. But I wonder if that is let's see how one can put this. Let me take a, a Cicero's example of Regulus in the end of book three of the On On Duties. Now Regulus decides that his honor and his duty as a citizen require him to go back to Carthage, where he's been taken prisoner. He's got to go back there because that's the, the, the honorable, the, the virtuous thing to do. Now, now, how does he view that? Or how would a Stoic view that? Or how does Cicero think that, that as Stoic readers, we would think about that? Um, because you might <laughs> now one way of doing it. This precisely isn't how Cicero does it. As Regulus might say, "Well, my my family and my city are nothing to me. <laughs> They're nothing to me. All that matters is my virtue." And and he might disappear off the horizon. That's not at all actually how Regulus is presented by Cicero. Cicero presents arguments for and against Regulus's position. Regulus has very powerful reasons not to go back to Carthage. He has a family. He has a community. He he has played a role. You know, he's he's become embedded in his family, and he's become embedded in his community. He has very powerful reasons to do that. And uh, you 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 could indeed argue that virtue requires him to stay rather than to, to go. There are different ways of reading that situation, and the Stoics are actually very aware of that fact that that the virtue isn't like you know it's not like a writing on a wall which will tell us infallibly what to do. There are different 
interpretations we, we have to make of what the virtuous thing to do is. For Regulus, he goes, he goes back to Carthage, he goes back to being tortured, he's killed. But what he is giving up is not nothing. What he is giving up is actually a lot. He's giving up lots of, if you like, preferred indifference, because he thinks the right thing to do is, is to go, not to remain. But he, it isn't a question of there being no loss. There is a loss. There is a loss, but what there isn't, he thinks, is a loss of doing the right thing and a loss of, of virtue. So I think the Stoics are often presented as, as if they kind of have a much simpler view than they actually do. I mean, they, they, they do recognize that in situations like this, there is indeed a real loss, but it's not the loss of things that are good in a kind of, you know, in their sense, because the good thing to do is to act virtuously and to act and to do what the right thing is. Now, you might say, oh, well, in this case, the Stoics yeah, have just said, think the same thing as the Aristotelians, but no, that's not right. They do, they, they would in the end think that the virtuous thing is, the, is in a way the only thing that matters, but it matters ultimately. But the other things matter in the sense that they have value, they have positive value. And I do think the trouble, you know, again, still Poe is a bit of a one-liner, like Epic, like there's the handbook of Epictetus. These one-liners have their limitations, I think. Well, so it's one reading of the Stilpo case, something like, in some contexts, the right action for someone who experiences a loss like Stilpo's may in fact be long periods of mourning or something of this sort. And yet, in other contexts, well, it might be well, better to face down someone like Demetrius with the sense that, oh, you <laughs> haven't lost anything because you know he's a vicious conqueror and that's how you should you know, treat vicious conquerors. Yes. I don't think it's quite... I don't think the Stoics would actually, would actually advocate long periods of mourning, but I think they do recognize that accepting, say, our own death and the death of others... I mean, look at Marcus. He, he, he devotes, I think it's about 58 of his meditations are devoted to coming to terms with death. Now, if death was just nothing, death is, you know, he wouldn't need to. He wouldn't need to, but he does. He gives himself all these arguments <laughs> for accepting the reality of death. Death is natural. Death is universal. Death is part of nature, part of the you know the cosmic world. No, he has to work at it. Now he's not in those passages, as it were, giving a kind of pre-morning, you know, an, an anticipatory morning. He does, you know, he's working, but 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 he does recognise that to get to that point of view requires work. It does require work yeah. of us. So he's not doing what the uh, psychologists sometimes call ruminating. He's not just going over and over it. He's not just going over and over it. He's work. It's work. It's 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 real work. And he's marshalling for himself all the kind of considerations that may make us accept what is indeed the case, the reality of our death. Even though there are other factors of our, of our human nature which 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 draw us in a different direction. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up towards time. Is there anything else you would like to add? 
I'd just like to mention that I'm writing an introductory book on Stoic ethics. It's going to be just called that, An Introduction to Stoic Ethics. And it will explore some of these issues. And I hope if it, well, it will get published by Oxford University Press, but I hope that people might buy it, not because I want to make lots of money, but I hope that people might find it a useful book. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure people will find it useful. I'm looking forward to reading. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for doing this again. Okay. It's been extremely good to talk to you and thank you for your penetrating questions and sympathetic responses. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.